with those technical difficulties. So just a couple announcements uh, before we begin here. Uh, home group tonight <clears throat> is at Pastor Rod's house. So Albert's home group is also combining with Pastor Rod's. And that will be at 6 p.m. tonight, <clears throat> again at uh, the Phillips home. If any questions, his phone number or his contact information is on the bulletin. Okay? Uh, so, <clears throat> good morning. Yes, it is me again. Pray for Pastor Rod. He's actually, <clears throat> he's actually preaching at higher ground this morning. And so he's covering for Billy. And uh, pray for him. He'll be preaching maybe around 1130. And then I'll be preaching there next week. And Pastor Rod will be back here. So we're just kind of helping Billy out um, as he is on vacation. So uh, that's the reason why Pastor Rod is not here today. <clears throat> um, so why don't we turn our Bibles to Philippians 2. 5 through 11. If I could ask everyone to please stand while we read the Word of God together. All right, reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for just the worship and, and the songs that we were able to sing to you. Lord, it's often said that we need you now. We need your spirit. Soften our hearts and open our eyes to the glory of your gospel. Use me, Lord, as your vessel, as I preach your word this morning. And also be with Pastor Rod as he preaches at higher ground. Lord, we thank you just for the local church. And we thank you for our people here this morning. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, most of you know me. I'm, I'm in, the, in seminary. And um, I got to write a paper on this particular passage. Uh, this particular passage, they would call it is, is the Christ hymn or the, or the hymn of Christ. And they would say back in those days, they would actually sing this as a hymn. And Paul wanted to put it here, just to place it here. As, uh, there's, there's much importance on why it's placed here, and I'll, I'll go through that in just, in just a little bit. But just keep in mind that this, uh, in the local church or during the church at the time, this was sung uh, as a hymn. In our text today, this presents Jesus as the ultimate model for Christian behavior and action. The central theme of Philippians 2 is the Christian life. In the opening verses, Paul writes that we, the church, are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider other Christians better than ourselves. You see, as a church, we are to be humble and obedient to God. Jesus Christ showed us the path from the throne of heaven to the cross 
Therefore, we are to emulate that. And so how do we do that, you might ask? You see, Paul gives us the ultimate example in Christ, as I mentioned, which we're going to talk about today. But also, if you follow along in Philippians 2, he gives three human examples. It's the Apostle Paul himself, the young pastor Timothy, and then the layman, Epaphroditus. If you read a little bit before chapter 2, in in chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, I talked about this maybe a couple weeks ago. Paul is talking about being united in the gospel so that the gospel can spread. And three things to pull from chapter 1, verse 27 through 30 is we are to stand together as a church, we are to strive together, and third, we are to suffer together. Then Paul, in chapter 2, circles back to help us see Christ as our model in our text today. I believe he does this to show us to show us that humility, humility is not achieved just by being in the church. True humility is achieved by looking at Christ. So before you get there, we have to understand the depth of what is being said here. This text tells us all about who Jesus is, all the things that he has done. Our aim or preposition this morning is this. We are to know and understand Christ's example of humility in order to change the way we think, act, and live. We are to know and understand Christ's example of humility in order to change the way we act, think, act, and live. As I go through this text today, I want you to just keep this in mind. This is going to unfold. God doesn't appear just to show you something. God appears in order to change you. Let me say that again. God doesn't appear just to show you something. He appears in order to change you. The first thing we see in our passage this morning, in verse 5, is the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This verse indicates that we are to think like Jesus thinks. Paul saying, let this mind be in you too. Therefore, as a church, we are to model this mind. Basically, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul first shows us the mind of Christ so that we can change the way we look at everything, think about everything, and act toward the world. Our minds are to have the same char- characteristics of Christ. If you look in verses 3 and 4, we find that Jesus is a perfect model Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see, Jesus does nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. He always counted others more significant than himself. In verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Jesus naturally looked out for others' interests and not his own. Verse 4, we see the Christ-like humility. It's really a self-denial. It's serving people who are hard to love, hard to care for, and hard to understand. This was Paul's point to the Philippian church. By being united in Christ, we must be of one mind, one love, showing humility, and looking out for others. For some of us, I know we just can't do it. 
you might say. We know there are certain people, maybe that are, that are Christians, where we can't just bear to be around. Maybe there are some in the church that you can't bear to be in the same room as them. But let me be straight with you. It's wrong for us to think that way. You see, in verse 1, Paul wanted the church to reflect on these qualities. He wanted to make sure the church was practicing encouragement, love, and he really wanted unity within the gospel, or unity with the gospel, excuse me. Paul's not giving us an option. As a church, we are to model the mind of Christ and, you be, and be united under Christ. He's saying, follow the example of Christ. You see, Jesus dealt with all types of people, yet he never thought of himself. Let me give you some examples in Scripture. In Romans 15, 3, Paul says, For Christ did not please himself. You see, the Christian life is not centered on you. It's centered on Christ and how you can help others. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, it says, Learn from me. Christ says, Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is the gentle king who is not consumed with himself. Let me ask you this morning, do you find it hard to serve people in the church? Or when serving others, are you thinking of yourself? Or are you thinking of whom you're serving? A Christ-like mind is serving others without thinking about what you can get out of it. Let me say that again. A Christ-like mind is serving others without thinking about what you can get out of it. And Paul even says in 1 Corinthians that we have this mind, the mind of Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.16. So it's important that we have this mindset, we have this framework set before us. Paul in this passage, Paul tell, in this verse, verse 5, Paul tells us what we have in Christ. But in the, in the following verses, he tells us what we need. Think of verse 5 as a, as a transition from exhortation, which was found in verses 1 to 4, to illustration, which is found in verses 6 to 8, which is our next point here. Next point, we find the humility of Christ. who, though he is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There are quite a few things we're going to see in this passage. The first is that Jesus is God. He was in the form of God. You know, I can easily leave it as that. But we have to understand why, why Paul is, what, what Paul is trying to do here in this passage. The word form, as we see in this passage, um, how we understand it, how we come to understand it in the English, English language is, is more external. Therefore, we may think of more of an external type of shape. Like when, when a baby is forming in the womb, we think of a baby as taking shape of a human form. But the word form in this passage is a little bit more complex. It's the Greek word morph, which means form, but the word form is more 
both, is both external and internal as well. Paul's saying Jesus Christ has a unique and very identical qualities that make God, God. Jesus is the very substance of God. Jesus has all the characteristics of God. Jesus Christ is the very being of God. Now, why couldn't I just say Jesus is God? Because it's not that simple. You see, other religions in the world attack the deity of Christ. These are how heresies are formed. I mean, if you talk to any Jehovah's Witness, they will tell you that Jesus is not God. Muslims do not believe in Jesus' divinity. They can't accept that Jesus is both human and divine. That's what separates Christianity from all other religions in the world. That's why we have to understand and believe that Jesus has the same exact and true nature of God. So what does that do for us as Christians? What does that do for us as a church? How is this supposed to affect our mind? And why does Paul put it here? You know, to answer that question, there, there may be some of us who, who go on in life not even thinking about the reality that Jesus is God. Maybe we forget. What do I say this? Because Jesus being God should change the way we live. Here's what I mean. Maybe some of us are scared. Maybe scared about the future. But when Jesus comes into your life, he says, I love you and I will never leave you nor forsake you. Maybe some of us are experiencing persecution or hardship. But Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. For some, maybe we're tired, maybe we're run down. But Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Maybe we're sorrowful, maybe we're joyless, but Jesus says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. You see, Paul knew the importance in coming to grips with the reality that Jesus is God. Again, if, if we truly believe Jesus is God, then it changes the way we live life. In Romans 8, Paul says he's not afraid of anything because he already knows the outcome. What does he say? There's one place where he says he's not afraid of death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power. Then in another place, he says, I'm not afraid of suffering, or hardship, or persecution, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Why? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? If we are afraid, lost, or pessimistic about life, then Paul reminds us that we are not thinking that we are not seeing Jesus as God. The second point we see in this passage is that Jesus did not hold on to God. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. By grasped, he means to be kept or to, to be retained. It means Jesus was equal with God, but decided not to hold on to it. He didn't use his godlike abilities to his own advantage. 
This is one of the hardest passages to deeply understand, but we have to appreciate it. Here's the key. Jesus didn't stop being God, but became completely dependent on God. Let me say that again. Here's the key. Jesus didn't stop being God, but he became completely dependent on God. You see, Jesus gave up all his rights in being God. When I say that, I think that's one of the hardest things for us as Americans to accept. We really have no rights. The very moment Jesus saves us, we give up our rights. In Galatians 2.20, says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus calls us to kill our rights, our own thinking, our impulses for the sake of Christ. It means that everything we have is His. Jesus says, I am better than all your rights, your own thinking, your own impulses. And Jesus is the greatest example. He gave up His rights. He didn't hold on to the form of God. That's what a Savior does. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He became human like you and I. And because he's human, he understands us. He knows what we're going through. You can go to him. Have you ever been betrayed? Jesus was betrayed. Have you ever been lonely? Jesus was lonely. Have you ever suffered? Jesus suffered. Third, we see that Jesus emptied himself. You see, Jesus did not exchange the form of God for the form of a slave, but he displayed the form of God in the form of a slave. Let me say that one more time. Jesus did not exchange the form of God for the form of a slave, but he displayed the form of God in the form of a slave. We see that he placed himself under satanic opposition in the world. In Matthew 4, we find the temptation of Jesus. In Hebrews 14, he says this. The writer says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, even though Jesus was fully divine and fully human, Jesus did not rely on his own divinity. He relied on God in his humanity. Let me give just a, 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 quick, a, a quick overview of, of Matthew 4. You see, we, Jesus was faced with three different temptations. Number one, he was faced with a physical temptation. If you remember, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. The first temptation was to put physical needs above spiritual ones. But Jesus rejected Satan based on biblical principles. You see, there's nothing wrong with having material things, but we have to, I mean, and we have an abundance of material things, but we must be careful not to seek them above God in our lives, as God is a great provider. The second temptation he, he faced was a spiritual temptation. You see, Satan was tempting Jesus to presume upon God, to place himself in a situation that was not of God's leading. Jesus answered that one must not put God to the test. Sometimes we're tempted to presume upon God. We follow our own wants and needs, thinking God 
will come and deliver us. We need to be very careful not to act on our own impulses, but to act in faith that God will provide. The third temptation we see in Matthew 4 is a vocational temptation. See, Satan tempted Jesus in trying to give him his place as king without having to die on the cross. Satan wanted to give Jesus the shortcut to the kingdom, the earthly kingdom, which really wasn't a a shortcut. Maybe we're tempted to get to a place without working for it. We want to cut corners in order to get to a place we don't belong. In emptying himself, the second thing we see in this passage is he became a humble servant. When I say second, I mean the third point. The first one is he placed himself under satanic opposition in the world. And second, he became a humble servant. Like I mentioned, Jesus not only became human, he became a servant. He could have come as, as a human being, then become powerful. He could have come as king, but instead he made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant. Where is the most popular place in the Bible where Jesus is a servant? We talked about this for the men that, at the Simeon, workshop, Simeon Trust workshop. It's found in John 13. Jesus washing his disciples' feet. I can't do a, a extensive um, exegesis on this, but let me give you three things from this passage. In John 13, we see the humility of Christ. First is, is his humility. Jesus Christ served men, these men, in spite of who he was. The king of kings became a servant. When does a king serve his people? Never. The second thing we see in this passage is Jesus' endurance. Jesus served these men in spite of what he was facing. The sinless king facing death served others. Let me ask you, what do you think about when you're facing something that is troublesome? In spite of what Jesus was facing, he wasn't thinking of himself. That's true service. He was thinking of us. Third, we see in John 13, we see the patience of Jesus. Jesus served in spite of whom he was serving. Who was the one that was going to betray him? It was Judas. He washed the feet of the one who was going to betray him. In the, contra- in the context of the church, how hard is it for us to serve someone who has jaded us? For some of us, we, we can't even, like I mentioned, be in the same room. We can't even look at them, let alone serve them. But that's what Jesus did. In spite of all the rejection, Jesus loved us, according to John 13. But he also loved us in another way. He loved us by his, do- by his death. Jesus died, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became a righteous sufferer, and he became the sacrifice. There are two things he experienced on the cross. I'm going to go through it here, or leading up to the cross. Jesus experienced physical death. Jesus was in agony 
Let me read for you in Luke 21, 41 to 44. Luke 21, 22, 41 to 44. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. I'm going to sort of give a, the physical toll it took. I, there's a study on, on what Jesus went through physically. So just bear with me. I'm going to quote some of these things. The physical toll that he experienced in the garden, this is what he, he went. Under conditions of great emotional stress, tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can rupture, thus mixing blood with perspiration. This condition has been reported in extreme instances of stress. Jesus was in agony. Second, we see that Jesus was flogged. In John 19, 1 through 2, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arraigned him in a purple robe. Let me read to you the the medical physical side of this. And I quote, To position a man for scourging, soldiers tied the victim, frequently naked, to an upright post in a bent position. The common method of Jewish scourging was via the use of three thongs of leather. The offender receiving 13 stripes on the bare breast and 13 across each shoulder. However, there was no such limit to the number of blows the Romans could deliver during a scourging. Thus, Christ's flogging at their hands would have been much worse. Christ would have received repeated blows to his chest, his back, his buttocks, and legs by two soldiers, known as lictors. The severity of which depended mainly on the mood of the lictors, lictors at the time. That was his flogging. Third, we see that Jesus was cru- crucified. And we see with his nail-pierced hands and feet. Let me quote. The, the piercing from the nails would damage the nerves and would have caused extraordinary pain to radi- up, radiate up the arms and legs to the spinal cord and finally to the brain. End quote. And this is what he experienced on the cross. Thus, in order to breathe, he was required to lift his body using his nailed wrist for leverage. Exhalation would be impossible in this position. And the immense pain placed on the wrist quickly would become too great. Therefore, Christ would have to slump into a Y position to exhale. Jesus would be forced to continue alternating between the Y position and the T position with every breath, trying all the while not to reopen the wounds he had received from the scourging. Fatigued muscles eventually would begin to spasm, and Christ would become exhausted from these repeated tasks, slumping permanently into the shape of a Y. End quote. This is Psalm 22. Let me read Psalm 22, starting with verse 14. I am poured out like a water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a poster. My tongue sticks to my jaws, 
and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is Jesus' physical death. Christ was humiliated on the cross for our sake. Not only did he experience physical death, but he experienced spiritual separation, or I would like to say spiritual death. Let me quote from a commentary here. Although Christ is the one who is eternal, eternal life itself, he did experience a kind of spiritual death. While on the cross, Jesus was fully conscious as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That utterance reflected his temporary and humanly incompre incomprehensible sense of alienation from the Father, while God's full wrath and the burden of sinners' iniquities were placed on him and judged. On the cross, ultimately his death, Jesus experienced what unbelievers experience, full separation from God, total darkness, total separation. I talked about this, this passage before in, Levit in Leviticus 16. It explains what happens on the annual day of atonement. There's two goats that would be sacrificed. One was slayed for the blood, and the other was driven out to the wilderness away from the presence of God. Jesus did both. His blood was shed, and he was driven out from the very presence of God. Friends, that, that is hell. Being cast off from the presence of God. And on the cross, Jesus experienced something worse than all of our hells put together. He experienced alienation from the Father. He just didn't suffer for three hours. He gave up the glory of the Father. He emptied himself, suffered all the wrath that we deserved. In John Stodd, in his book, Basic Christianity, he talks about, if you ever read the Bible, you'll see that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ ever had a simple reaction to him. There are only three, three, three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and tried to kill him. They were afraid of him and tried to run away. Or they were absolutely enamored with him. And they tried to give their whole lives to him. But nobody ever had a moderate reaction to Jesus. What is your reaction to Jesus, the suffering servant? We see his physical death. We see his spiritual separation. And lastly, our third point today, we see the response from our Father. The exaltation of Christ. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In verse 9, you know, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 45. This is where most believe that Paul gets his Christ hymn, referencing that Jesus shared the name of Yahweh with God. 
and it was through his death that Jesus was exalted as Yahweh. The divine honor of universal worship is bestowed up the Lord Jesus Christ or bestowed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what it says in verse 9. He is the ruler. He is the Lord of lords. In verse 10, it says, Every knee should bow to Yahweh. Every knee will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. The day will come when those who refuse to bow to, the, to Christ as Lord will bow to him in judgment. Everyone will eventually bow to Yahweh. In verse 11, everyone will confess, either willingly or by force. Paul says in Romans that each of us will give an account for himself to God. Gateway, okay, there's no escaping this. The word, the word confess really is an acknowledgement that he is Lord. It's the most important confession a Christian will ever make. So who is Jesus Christ? Our text today is clear. Jesus is God. Jesus became a man and a slave. Jesus died on the cross. Therefore, Jesus Christ is exalted. Jesus is God's Messiah. You know, ultimately we are confronted with the humility of Christ, or when we are confronted with the humility of Christ, we are faced with the decision to do three things, one of three things. We are to do nothing, we are to hate him, or we are to embrace him. Let me say this again. We are, when we are faced with the humility of Christ, we are to do nothing, or we are, we are to hate him, or we are to embrace him. I'm going to close by reading Isaiah 53, and you could turn to me there, with me there. Against Isaiah 53, I'm going to close by reading this. Reading, Who has believed that what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears it's silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, 
Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offspring for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This text says a lot of things, but let me focus on what true humility is. When you look at Jesus, you see a man, as Isaiah 53 states, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Do you know why? Because he is perfect and humble. When you are not consumed with yourself, you can feel the sadness of the world. When Jesus became incarnate, he saw and felt the sadness of the world. The cross says we are helpless, we are weak, we are hopeless. And Jesus says, I know. I emptied myself, I became a man, and I left perfect fellowship with the Father for you because I love you. Let us pray. Father, I have not even reached the depth of this text, the depth of your glory. But Father, with just a brief glimpse of what we just had in in the moment we had this morning, we ask that you, you will change us, that the gospel will move us to be humble, to serve one another with Christ-like humility, to love each other with Christ-like humility, to not think of what we can get out of service, but only to think about the people we are serving, because you did that. You paid the ultimate cost for us. You died for us physically. You died for us spiritually in order that we may enjoy you forever in heaven. So, Lord, let us go home today. Not the same, but a changed person. Willingly glorifying you in all that we do. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.